Good morning. If you'll stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. And while you are standing, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. As Pastor Bruce mentioned, if you are in need of a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and you can find today's reading on page 989. We'll be in Matthew 26, starting in verse 30. Follow along with me as I read. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. But then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will will your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come this morning, and, and Lord, as I reflect on this text, Father, I'm thankful for your Son and his willingness, his faithfulness, even to death, to go to the cross, to die for our sins. Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes, as Pastor Bruce brings your word and your message today. In your name I pray, amen. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus at the table. In fact, that was the focus of last Sunday's message, was at the table. And at the table, we saw Jesus transform the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. And today... Here in this passage in Matthew 26, we see Jesus, not at the table, but now in the garden. And there in the garden, he is tested for you. How many of you have been to uh, Powell Gardens here uh, just outside the Kansas City area? Anybody been to Powell Gardens? Yes, coming up on the screen, Powell Gardens is a 970-acre botanical garden just 30 miles east of Kansas City. 
It actually has seven themed gardens, all featuring a, a variety of plant landscapes, such as the, the fountain garden shown on the screen. It's a beautiful place to walk through and see. If you've never been, I encourage you to take a Saturday or a weekday and go out there, especially in the springtime or summertime, and, uh, and just and tour it, see it, relax at it. In fact, gardens are typically places of beauty. Gardens are places of, of peace in tranquility. It's a place to get away from the stress of life, a place to relax and even renew your spirit. And that was true of this particular garden here in Matthew 26. It's called Gethsemane. In fact, you see a picture coming up on the screen of it. The Garden of Gethsemane is located on the hillside of the Mount of Olives just outside of the city of Jerusalem. The grove of olive trees that was in this particular garden was a, was a fragrant and quiet place which Jesus went to frequently. And he went there to pray, to renew his spirit. In fact, what's really interesting about this particular garden is Gethsemane means oil press. So apparently there was an oil press in the garden where olives were pressed for their oil. But here in chapter 26 of Matthew, Jesus would experience the most crushing of experiences other than the cross. As we sort of lift the veil on that night in the garden, we see Christ's passion like never before. In fact, this word passion, it's in the title, we're calling it the the passion of Christ, and you may be wondering, well, why passion? What does that even mean? Well, passion is a term that's commonly used when referring to Christ's suffering, specifically between the time of the Last Supper, which we just saw last Sunday, and his death on the cross. So we're talking about a very short time period here of Christ's passion. His suffering in the Bible, especially the Gospel of Matthew, unveils for us where we're able to see the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ as never before. In fact, there's no place we see the human side of Christ's passion more fully than we see it right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has often been called. And maybe you've heard this term, the the suffering Savior. And Matthew wants you to see that. That's Matthew's objective here in these chapters. He's writing in such a way that he displays for us the passion or the suffering of Jesus Christ. Because he wants us to get a glimpse of it. He wants us to behold the passion of Christ and to see it but not just to behold it in a nonchalant way. There's a purpose behind it all. There's a reason for it. In fact, notice in in your notes, and I pray that you will see Christ's passion for you in the way that Matthew intends. Here's the purpose of seeing the Savior's suffering. See Him so that you'll love Him so that you'll follow Him. You see, Matthew is showing us that Jesus is a savior and even a king like no other. Who is worthy of our love and worthy of following with all our lives. We've already seen Jesus at the table in Simeon's house being anointed for burial. 
in this costly act of love by Mary, while at the same time rebuking his disciples for missing the significance of it all. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus at another table celebrating the Passover with his disciples one last time when he shockingly reveals that one of his disciples, we know him as Judas Iscariot, has already agreed to betray Jesus into the hands of the Jewish leaders. After leaving the Passover meal, Jesus goes with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, where he stops to pray here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it's rather interesting to note that gardens actually play a significant role in the story of redemption. If you go to Genesis, think about it, in the Garden of Eden... The story of salvation began when Adam and Eve failed their test. They failed the test of obedience to God's will in that particular garden. But now we come to another garden. The Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, who Paul calls the second Adam, will be faced with the greatest test of obedience to the Father's will in his life. He is tested here in this garden like never before. So let's look at it. And that's what Matthew wants us to do. He wants us to see it with our eyes, but more importantly, he wants us to see with our hearts. Notice, number one, see a Savior who grieves in anguish. Up to this point, Jesus has been absolutely fearless on his way to the cross. Jesus has been resolute in his actions. He has been unwavering in his determination to fulfill God's redemptive plan of salvation. But something happens here in the garden. Here in the garden, we see Jesus in anguish. We see him overcome with sorrow and grief. In fact, the anguish of Christ kind of spreads like a blanket over this entire scene in the garden. It's somber It's sober. Look what it says in verses 36 through 38 again. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, words fail in trying to describe the the anguish that Jesus felt. And yet Matthew tells us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And those words mean deep grief and distress. Those feelings began to close in on Jesus, so much so that he actually confesses to Peter, James, and John that my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. That phrase, very sorrowful, it actually means to be struck with terror. In other words, inside Jesus, there is a sorrow and terror so strong, so all-consuming, that it threatens life itself. Now, we know that Isaiah prophesied that the Savior would be a a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And nowhere is that more true of Jesus than here in the garden. Luke, 
in his gospel, he adds to this scene that Jesus was in such agony that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. One writer describes this moment for Jesus in the garden this way, and I quote, Grief enveloped him, surrounded him, saturated his conscious mind. It was so deep, it was as if death had wrapped its fingers around his shoulders. And nowhere else in the Gospels do we see the fullness of Christ's humanity like we do here in the garden. Now, the question is so obvious, we just got to stop and ask, though. Why is Jesus so anguished? I mean, what could possibly cause this kind of agony to this kind of man? After all, we've seen Christian martyrs throughout history including some of these same disciples who are with Jesus in the garden, we've seen them face death with courage and even in peace. For example, Polycarp was a second century Christian bishop of Smyrna when he was burned at the stake. And when they asked him if he had any last words, he said in a loud voice to the crowd, 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. That's amazing. Talk about courage. Talk about even peace of heart to be willing to say those words. Yet here in the garden, we see Jesus approach death with a different sort of spirit. We see him grieving in anguish. In fact, we see him trembling in terror and falling down even in distress Matthew says at one point in verse 39 that Jesus fell on his face and prayed. Martin Luther said, never do we see a man fear death like this man. So why? You ever wonder that? Why do we see such anguish from Jesus now? Well, I suggest there are three reasons for such anguish, distress, and sorrow on behalf of our Savior, in the first of which is Jesus begins to feel the anguish of desertion by his disciples here in the garden. You know, it's hard to grieve and suffer even when you have friends who are there for you. But it is especially difficult to grieve and suffer when the people you're counting on most abandon you in your moment of greatest need. And yet that's exactly what the disciples do here in the garden. Of course, Jesus predicted all this would happen when he told them back in verses 31 and 32, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so when they arrived in the garden, Jesus told his disciples in verse 36, sit here while I go over there and pray. And so Jesus wants to be alone, but not entirely alone. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him as he prayed. 
Three times he tells his three closest friends to watch and pray with him. And three times Jesus comes back only to find them what? Yeah. Sleeping. And knowing by the night's end that all the disciples will abandon him, Jesus, he begins to feel the anguish of this. The anguish of this desertion by his closest friends. But there's another reason why I think that's causing such anguish of Jesus. Number two, Jesus begins to feel the anguish of crucifixion by the soldiers on the cross. You see, understand, Jesus was not going to die as a martyr. Jesus was going to die as a substitute on the cross. And he knew that his crucifixion was the next day. Death on a cross was death by a prolonged torture. The piercing of hands and feet with nails, the exposure to burning sun or bitter cold, the humiliation by mocking crowds, the near impossible strain of lifting the collapsed body to breathe, the physical frame becoming weaker, the mind-numbing delirious, all excruciating pain. Death on a cross lasted a long time, hours or even days. Crucifixion itself was an, an intentional slow death So the condemned experienced maximum agony. And those who watched it learned never to rebel against the state or Rome. Crucifixion was so cruel that the Romans crucified only slaves or their enemies and not their own citizens. And so knowing all of this, Jesus knows this. Jesus begins to feel the anguish of his coming crucifixion within the next 24 hours. But listen to me, as agonizing as desertion may be, as agonizing as the crucifixion is coming to be, listen to me, nothing compared to the agony that Jesus feels when he anticipates the consequences of of bearing our sins on the cross. Which brings us to the third reason. (coughs) Jesus begins to feel the anguish of separation. See, it wasn't just the anguish of desertion by his friends. It wasn't just the anguish of the crucifixion. It was first and foremost the anguish of separation from the Father on the cross. Now, this is the theological connection that we have from Gethsemane to Golgotha. In the garden, what Jesus fears more than anything is separation from God, his Father. You have to understand, you got to know, Jesus was, was sinless. Jesus was perfectly good. And in his humanity, he never knew sin. But on the cross... Jesus will bear our sin and punishment. On the cross, he will identify with us in our sin and even become the object of God's judgment for sin. You see how? Because it tells us in the scriptures that Jesus became sin for us. And in becoming sin for us, the Father turned away from him. And this turning away, this temporary separation from the Father is what caused his soul to be so sorrowful. Why is Jesus so overcome with anguish? 
Why is Jesus so sorrowful and troubled when Jesus was actually dying on the cross? And we'll see this in the weeks to come. We read what he says in Matthew 27, 46. And it was about the ninth hour. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One Bible scholar says it this way. The only explanation for Jesus' anguish is that here... In Gethsemane, God had already begun to turn his face away from his son. Before the first nail was driven into his body, Jesus' soul was already being abandoned by God. This is the horror of the one who lived wholly for the Father, who came to be with his Father for a brief interlude here in the garden before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. So see a Savior, see your Savior, who grieves in anguish for you. Watch Him, love Him, and follow Him. And Matthew goes on, he tells us, don't just stop there. See a Savior who wrestles in prayer. See a Savior who wrestles in prayer. Look what it says here in verse 39. And going, this is Jesus, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now just think of this image, picture it in your mind. Here's the Son of God. And he is laying prostrate on the ground with his face in the dirt of the garden, crying out to his Father in heaven. He is grieving in agony. And he cries to his father. The Savior's prayer basically comes down to two parts. The first part is this. Jesus cries to the father for relief. When he says, my father, if it be possible, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Notice how Jesus began the prayer. He addressed God as what? My father. So this is a very intimate prayer, very personal prayer. This is fact how Jesus taught us as God's children to pray. When you go back to the Beatitudes, not the Beatitudes, but the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, as God's children, do you realize that we have the exact same privilege to address God Almighty as Jesus did? My Father. Jesus came to God with all the confidence of a son coming to a father, and he makes this one request. If if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, the request of Jesus here focuses on what? On the cup, this cup. So we have to ask, well, what is this cup? Well, this cup is actually a symbol of God's wrath, which is poured out in judgment against sin. The Old Testament prophets talked a lot about God's wrath against sin as a, quote, cup that the wicked were required to drink. 
So, for example, Isaiah talked about God's sinful people, God's people, in fact, drinking from the cup of God's wrath in Isaiah 51, 17. And Jeremiah said that evil nations would drink from the cup that is filled with the wine of God's wrath in Jeremiah 25, 15. So here in the Old Testament, the cup is symbolic of God's wrath. It represents the anger, the fury, and judgment of God against sin. And here in the garden, Jesus begins to taste what is in that cup. Jesus looked into the cup of God's wrath. Let me tell you, it overwhelmed him so badly that it almost killed him right then and there. Gethsemane, remember what it means? Oil press. And that's what's happening here. The reality of God's wrath against our sin is now pressing in on Jesus. And it is literally squeezing the life out of him. And so when Jesus prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's asking that he will be spared of that experience of suffering the fury of God's wrath against sin. That's why Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Listen, it wasn't merely the prospect of him experiencing death on a cross. Listen, it was the prospect of Jesus experiencing hell on the cross. And that shook him. Jesus knew what was coming. And so he prays for relief. My father, if it is possible. Let this cup pass from me. In fact, it almost seems that Jesus is facing the same temptation that Satan laid before him earlier in Matthew when he was in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. An alternative path to accomplishing God's will. And so all Jesus certainly knows that, listen, anything is possible for the Father. He's really wrestling with the idea, this reality of drinking this cup of God's wrath against sin. As D.A. Carson says in prayer, Jesus inquires about an alternative route by which to fulfill the Father's redemptive plan. But there was no other route. There was no other road. There was no other path. There was no other way in which to fulfill God's redemptive plan. This, this cup is the only way of salvation. And so honestly, can you think of any greater insult now to Jesus Christ than to say that there are multiple ways of salvation? Listen, I know in our culture, you are seen as as open-minded to say there are many ways to heaven and to plaster a coexist sticker on the back of your car. But just think how insulting that is to our Savior. When he prays to his Father in agony, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. And if there were other ways, but God doesn't tell Jesus and just lets his son die on the cross. But there was no other ways. There is only one way. 
to save us. And so while Jesus cries out for relief in the first part of his prayer, notice the second part of his prayer. Jesus cries out to the Father's submission. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, you've got to understand, this is fully consistent with everything we know about Jesus. Throughout his life, and you read this in all four of the Gospels, Jesus lived for nothing else except for doing the will of his Father. That was his supreme mission in life, fulfilling God's will. And now it's that mission which triumphs over this deep moment of agony in the garden. And so in the midst of the darkest moment of Jesus' life, his commitment to accomplishing his Father's will holds fast. He does not waver from it. Jesus knows who he is. He knows who his father is. He knows what his mission is. Jesus loves his father, and he's willing to trust that there is no other way of salvation. And so Jesus cries out to his father in submission, nevertheless, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you, father, as you will. And so Jesus accepted this cup when he prayed even a second time in verse 42, where he says, My Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. His anguish was strong enough, though, that Jesus actually wrestled in prayer a third time. And we're told by Matthew that he repeats the same prayer, saying the same words again. Do you realize this is the turning point of God's redemptive plan? The sin of Adam and Eve in the first garden. Their sin in the Garden of Eden was to exert their will over God's will. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve basically said to God, I don't care about you. We're doing our own thing. We're going to live our own life any way we want. Our will is supreme. The difference between the Garden of Eden... And the Garden of Gethsemane couldn't be more greater. Adam basically said to God, not your will, mine. But Jesus here in this garden says to his father, not my will, but yours. D.A. Carson, if I can quote him again, put it this way. In the first garden, not your will but mine changed paradise to a desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. That's what Jesus did for you. Here is a Savior who wrestled deeply with the implications and the cost of obeying his Father's will in a way that you and I could never even imagine. So watch him. Love him. Follow him. Number three, see a Savior who warns in love. Who warns in love. When Jesus and his disciples first entered the garden, he took Peter, James, and John with him a little ways further in the garden. And he actually tells them something specific. He says, watch with me. While then he prays alone. 
After spending some considerable time in prayer, Jesus returns to his disciples and he finds them again doing what? Sleeping. Imagine, though, the emotional trauma of what Jesus has just experienced. He's in anguish. His soul is very sorrowful. And then imagine what it must have been like to find his closest friends asleep instead of watching and praying with him. You can almost hear the disappointment in Jesus' words here in verse 40, where he says to them, So, could you not watch with me one hour? At this point, Jesus now gives some important instructions to his disciples. No longer is he asking them to watch with me. Now he is warning them about the danger that is about to befall them. The focus here is no longer on watching with me, Jesus says. Jesus tells them to pray. And the reason he tells them to pray is because of temptation. In verse 41, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so the disciples, listen, they are unaware. They are clueless of the dire moments that are just around the corner. I actually believe if they would have known what is to come, they would have been praying instead of sleeping. Isn't it amazing, though, as you focus on Jesus here, that Jesus, even in his darkest moment, even in his loneliest moment, he's still trying to do what? He's still reaching out to his disciples. He's still trying to help them. Even in a disappointing moment, when he needed them most... He is actually warning them in love. But this is Jesus. This is our Savior. And the Savior's warning to them is twofold. And it has practical implications for you and I even today. Notice this. We could phrase the first warning this way. Those who sleep when they should be praying fall into temptation. Which is exactly what the disciples did. Instead of praying, they slept. And then the obvious happened. They fell right into temptation. They did what they said they would never do. Oh, Lord, we will never leave you. We'll never desert you. And yet here at the end, we find them doing what? Man, they are running scared for their lives. They have abandoned Jesus. They failed to heed the second lesson, the one that Jesus modeled before them, and that is those who pray persevere in testing. The disciples failed and failed miserably, but Jesus was faithful and he persevered in testing. Here in the garden, Jesus prepared to give himself both to sinners and for sinners with his death on the cross. Such was his perseverance and his resolve to do his Father's will. It is such a beautiful thing to behold, is it not? To behold a Savior who still warns, but he does so in love. Watch him. And as you watch him, love him. And as you love him, let that compel you to follow him. But lastly, see a Savior who obeys in betrayal. After praying a third time, Jesus returns to his disciples knowing that his hour has come. Perhaps he could even hear the mob of soldiers coming from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. 
But what Jesus says next here in verse 45 needs to be read with soberness. Look at it with me one more time. Jesus tells his disciples, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now that is a remarkable statement. The Son of Man. A designation for Christ himself. The Son of Man, yes, who is also the Son of God. He is fully man and fully God. We see humanity and deity come to the cross. The Son of Man, the one who has the power to heal the blind, the one who has the power to raise the dead, the one who has the power to walk on water, is about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up the mountain is coming a band of sinful men to arrest him. And notice what Jesus says to his disciples here in verse 46. He says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, the irony of this moment is so clear. Sinful men are coming, but Jesus is not running away. He is not in panic mode. He is not fleeing frantically for his life. Why? Because the hour has come for God's will to be done. Again, if I may quote Carson, he says this, Jesus has prayed in agony, but now rises with poise and advances to meet his betrayer. Has there ever been a greater act of obedience in all of history? What an amazing Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus' highest priority was the will of his Father, even when it was costly, even when it was dangerous, even when it meant being betrayed into the hands of his enemies. And we need to realize, even today, we here who claim to be Christ followers, we need to realize that obedience to God's will is oftentimes difficult, and painful and costly. It is not enough for us to simply say to God, your will be done. We must be willing to live it out and live it out in this culture, in this world, among family, among friends, among peers, among coworkers, among students at school, wherever God has us. And Jesus shows us what it means with his own obedience in the garden on his way to the cross. Therefore, can I encourage you, we ought to stand and we ought to just marvel. We ought to stand in awe at the gracious choice that Jesus made for you. And know that there is never a time in your life when Jesus cannot relate to your own struggle to do what God wants you to do. Therefore, watch him, love him. And follow him. Listen, here in the garden, we see a Savior who is tested like never before. And so, another obvious question is this. Did Jesus pass the test? He's tested in the garden. Did he pass the test in the garden? And the answer is yes. Listen, notice this in your notes. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath dry on the cross so that we wouldn't have to drink any of it ever. Please listen to me. Look up here and just listen for a moment. Let this sink in. Do you realize we all deserve God's wrath? Because we all 
Every one of us here this morning are sinners who fall short of the glory of a holy God. Do you realize the cup of God's wrath, it fits naturally into my hands. And that same cup, the cup of God's wrath, let me tell you, it fits naturally into your hands. We, it's like it was made for us because of our sin. That cup of God's wrath fits naturally into every human being who walks on the face of this earth. But Jesus has never sinned, and he is the only person in history who does not deserve to face the wrath of a holy God and drink that cup. But here in the garden, Jesus begins tasting, tasting in his soul the contents of that awful cup. And in a few hours, let me tell you, he will drink damnation dry on the cross. Why? Why would he do that? Why did he do that? So that we, we here, wouldn't have to drink any of it ever. One Hebrew professor writes it this way. He says, Jesus was to drink the cup of curse and condemnation. He did not leave one bitter drop for us, but drank it to the dregs and instead put into our hands, listen to this, the cup of salvation. So what we have here is an exchange of cups. We were meant to hold the cup of wrath. But instead, we get the cup of salvation because Jesus was willing to drink that cup of God's fury for you and for me. For those of us, for those of you who have received the cup of salvation, we have here in the garden one of the most beautiful pictures of God's love for all of mankind. So how do do you respond to this? What do, we, what do we do with this? I mean, when you leave here, you go home and take a nap or you watch TV, you get up in the morning, you go to work. What, what should we do? How do we, how do we apply this? Well, let me offer you two ways. Number one is to look to the cross and abhor your sin. Look to the cross and abhor your sin. Why was Jesus facing this agony in the garden to begin with? It was because of our sin. But here's the deal, folks. Listen to me. We live in a culture today that is constantly making light and making fun of sin. We laugh about it. We play with it. We excuse it. We even encourage and play with it. We act like sin is no big deal. How many times have you heard someone say, after all, we're only human, to excuse some act of sin? The idea is that as humans, we're we're sort of expected to sin. It's okay. It's normal. But we are dead wrong. Sin is costly. Sin robs us of God's fellowship. Do you realize sin destroys our joy? And most of all, sin is what costs the life of our Savior. And so when we justify sin, when we try to rationalize away our sin, you know what we're doing? We are diminishing the very sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we play with sin, we are erecting a barrier between us and the one who loves us with this incredible love. And so let me encourage you, leave here and look to the cross. And as you do, abhor your sin. 
But don't stop there. Number two, look to the cross and adore your Savior. Listen, do you realize Jesus could have? He could have turned away in the garden. And yet, listen again to what he said. My Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And so I ask you again, have you ever heard more obedient words than this? Have you ever heard more loving words than this? The Savior here in the garden is agreeing to submit to a horrible and torturous death. Why? Because he knows it is the only way for us to be saved from our sins. It is the only way for you and I to find salvation. God sent his own son to become, listen, sin for us. And so here in the garden, we see, and I hope you see with your eyes, but more important, I hope you see with an open heart, we see Jesus. We see him in the garden tasting the cup of God's wrath for you. And in doing so, it staggers him, it knocks him to the ground, but it does not shake his love for you. You can look at Jesus contemplating that cup of God's wrath, surrounded by disciples who are failing him, much like we do, and you can see him saying to his father, I will drink it for them. I'll drink it for her. I'll drink it for that person. I'll drink this cup for that person. In fact, I will drink it for the whole world. We can look at Jesus kneeling in anguish, and we can know beyond all doubt that God loves me. Therefore, how can we not look to the cross and in response adore the Savior who died for you? Watch Him. Love Him. But most of all, follow Him. And yes, when you follow Him, there will be times it will be costly and dangerous. But no, you are in the hands of a sovereign God. And that's what we will see next Sunday. Jesus commits himself to this Father because the Father has a sovereign plan that is for you. Let's pray. As we bow our heads in prayer, listen, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've never placed all your trust in Jesus rather than in yourself, rather than in your works, I invite you to respond in saving faith now. The praise team is going to sing just a chorus. The instrumentals are going to play through a chorus. And as they do, listen, you can pray. Jesus cried out in the garden. You can cry out here in your pew for salvation. Look to Jesus and see his love for you and place your faith in him for salvation. And for those of you who are already Christ followers, listen, this is a great opportunity to abhor your sin through repentance and confession of it and receive forgiveness that Jesus brought to you through his death on the cross. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son was crucified for us. We thank you that Jesus faced this cup in the garden and he was willing to drink it dry on the cross for us. He didn't leave a drop for us. There's no judgment left. There's no wrath left. There's no punishment left for our sins when we come to Jesus in saving faith. 
And so Jesus took it all, and his blood cleanses us from all our sins, and we thank you for it, Father. Let us leave here compelled to look at the cross and abhor our sin and adore our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The instrumentals are going to play through a chorus. Will you respond as the Lord leads?